Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, this is Ryan Tansom. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Dan Fagella. Dan has got a really cool story because he started his entrepreneurship lifestyle when he opened up a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coaching gym. And after getting a lot of clients, he started to revamp his business model and morphed it into a company called Science of Skill that was providing training and education to people online. And he had very specific intentions when he started Science of Skill because he wanted to grow monthly recurring revenue to a point where he could then sell this business and then fund his next venture. So after Dan went about growing the business, he found out that he was going to have to be in the business a little bit longer than he anticipated. And Dan explains all the things that he did in order to package the company up and sell it for 90% cash down and then fund his second venture or his next venture, which is technically his, his third, called Tech Emergence, so he can pursue his ultimate passion in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dan. Lots of gold nuggets on what was valuable in the business, why he was able to get 90% cash down. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. And without further ado... Here's Dan. Dan, how you doing today? Doing well, Ryan. Glad to be here. I'm very excited. Uh, we had a very unique circumstance with an introduction to, uh, from our friend John Warlow, who you also were on his show. And yep. I'm excited to hear your story because it's a unique one, especially for uh, the age that you're at to have experienced uh, what you've experienced. But for our listeners to get a little bit of a context, can you go back to, I, I actually want to ask specifically when you had that jujitsu uh Jim and you had decided to kind of switch gears into your next venture kind of explain how you decided to become that entrepreneur in the new form that you were sure man yeah I mean the, the my first uh, business as, as you had mentioned was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu academy so all my friends were paying for college by you know delivering pizza and like selling insurance and really boring stuff and I uh, <laughs> I was pretty pretty into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and sort of the the physical and mental chess game of beating bigger opponents and uh, fighting. And so I decided to open a mixed martial arts academy to pay for college and for Ivy League graduate school just because I, I always felt like getting a job would be really boring. So um, that was the first business. But yeah, at some point, Ryan, at the end of kind of grad school at, at UPenn, uh, which which I had to pay for by teaching people to choke other people, <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, at the end, of, the end of that experience, I was pretty well under the conclusion that it was probably going to be technology rather than innovations in theory of psychology that sort of pushed uh, the human species forward and sort of had the biggest ethical impact uh, on sort of how intelligence itself kind of develops in, in within my lifetime. And so because of that, when I was about 24, I decided, man, I don't think I can run a jujitsu gym forever. I'm going to have to get out to Silicon Valley. I'm going to have to really get into potentially influencing um, – uh, policy and uh, sort of business adoption of these kind of advanced AI technologies, and eventually neuroscience, but I think AI is going to have a lot more near-term impact. So deciding that at about age 24, I knew I needed a location independent, uh, uh, very much lean and kind of margin, uh, like like healthy margined business, preferably with recurring revenue uh, that could fund uh, a successful transition all the way out to the West Coast. Uh, and then that I could sell so I could have a lump of cash to start uh, a San Francisco Bay Area company without having to kind of give away equity to investors so I could be my own investor. So that was the game plan to maintain control over kind of a purpose-led business and technology and to do that by growing and selling something highly profitable. So, which I love. I absolutely dig the fact that you started with the end in mind and I've got a couple articles out there where that's kind of the, the, the tagline start with the end in mind but very few individuals do that and it's what you did was very articulated and 
we're just kind of curious, like who was, did you have a business mentor or a book or like, how did you figure out that that was going to be your game plan to get you to that where you're on the journey that you're on right now? I mean, you know, it's probably because I didn't have a business mentor, to be honest. I mean, I come from a 4,000 person <laughs> town in, in, uh, Wakefield, Rhode Island, um, which, you know, you'll never hear of again. You'll never drive through, uh, you know, it'll, it, that, that name will never cross your mind because it, it's a uh, complete obscurity. So there really isn't sort of business expertise where I'm from. I think the, the like richest guy in the town has like some laundromats or something, you know? So it's not, um, it's not super, uh, super advanced in that regard. Um, but, uh, the, to be honest, I mean, if I could roll back time, I might have gone straight to the West coast and just raised money and kind of found the right co-founders. But I was kind of under this naive belief that I would be able to sell the thing as soon as we had, you know, 10 grand or more to the bottom line per month recurring that, Hey, we'd be able to find a buyer. We'd be able to get out. As it turns out, Ryan, uh, the SBA, you know, unless you find some kind of wacky strategic alliance or something, you're going to have to go with banks. And the SBA wants to see a whole bunch of years of tax returns. And so I ended up having to grow the thing, you know, for four years and, and get us to a couple million in top line revenue before I could actually get a bank to, you know, facilitate uh, a seven figure transaction. So, um, so yeah, so I mean, it's because I didn't have a business mentor, I think, that I thought it would be possible. As soon as I got to about 40 grand top line, I was like, hell yeah, we're about 12, 14 <laughs> months in. I was like, all right, cool, 40 grand top line, I'm keeping more than 10. Uh, you know, this is recurring revenue. Pff, I'll definitely find a buyer, right? I've only had this thing for a year. I'm going to flip this bad boy, call it a day. So it was out of naivete that I started it thinking I could get out earlier. I ended up having to spend half my time giving TED Talks and writing articles and building a media uh, business around sort of AI and, and neurotech, and then uh, spend the other half of my time selling self-defense material on the internet uh, as, as a recurring revenue business. So to be honest, it was it was for not having business guidance yeah, that I went the path that I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and, but it's very interesting that you went down the route of a business as your platform to get to where you want to go instead of, you know, like, I mean, you hear all the stories of people go and they raise a bunch of money, they they own like none of it at the end of the day. So you still yeah. had, a, I think, very sophisticated a perception of how to get where you're going. And you keep, you've, you've brought it up a couple of times and you're talking about the recurring revenue and yeah. how did you determine that that was your route that that was the important flagship, you know, driver that you were looking at? You know, I, I think I had had it impressed on me pretty early on that just recurring revenue is, is a good thing. Recurring revenue is going to help you sell for a higher margin. Recurring revenue is going to give you less nightmares at night than businesses that don't have recurring revenue. Um, and I think that part of that just came from being in the, the martial arts academy world. So um, we didn't have a huge business, maybe you know a quarter million dollar a year jujitsu gym that I built up over about two, three years. Um, but that, that business was all predicated on you know, finding ways to deliver enough value where someone would want to pay every darn month. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the only reason... <laughs> It the only exhausting. reason I, it, it does, yeah, it does. But, but the only reason I was able to sell that gym um, was because uh, it was recurring, right? So I think that lesson kind of traveled over where I said, "Man, I've got to be able to deliver enough robust value and kind of get the trust barrier past that lip where people are willing to say, you know what, I'll give you a go on something monthly here, uh, and transfer that to kind of an online business model that I could." kind of run from anywhere. So I think it was, it was just, it was a lesson for my first company, kind of a good general, uh, business sense thing. And I just said, man, whatever I do next, I got to make sure those rebuilds are, are pretty high, uh, every darn month. So explain to the audience what, you know, so you switch from your, you know, tra traditional gym to an online platform local. What was what like? What exactly were the services? How did you deliver them? And I mean, obviously, you were yeah. you found a way to make them recurring, which is which yep. is key. Yeah, I'll give you the the quick rundown. Basically, um, the at the martial arts gym. So I had done a lot of national competitions, uh, a lot of competitions against bigger opponents. So I'm like a hundred and twenty something pound guy. I have a lot of kind of competition stuff on the internet of you know fighting two hundred pound dudes. People always like those YouTube videos, you know what I mean? Everybody likes to see the little guy choke out the big guy or whatever, you know? So it was that stuff was catching on on YouTube, uh, and 
I already knew at this point that I kind of needed to get into tech. I needed a, a more location-independent business. I needed to get out of Rhode Island to fulfill kind of my moral purpose. Um, and I said, man, you know, this is probably going to be the easiest route. I'm in my gym every day. So w- what do I do, Ryan? I, I just put a camera on, you know, if I flew out to Oklahoma, to, somebody flew me out to, you know, pay me to do a jiu-jitsu seminar in Oklahoma or somebody brought me up to, you know, University of Maine or somewhere in Maryland to do a jiu-jitsu seminar. I was doing a lot of teaching on the road. I would just film this stuff and then I would give it to their audience for free. So now they have like kind of a free DVD of the event that they already paid for. They definitely appreciate that. And then I could go on the internet and sell the same seminar for maybe 17 bucks, 27 bucks, something like that. And what mm-hmm. happened, Brian, is I took kind of the curriculum that I used to kind of train my own students, uh, as well as a whole bunch of match breakdowns of kind of the best lightweight jiu-jitsu guys in the world beating bigger jiu-jitsu guys, uh, stuff that I had studied myself already. I turned that into kind of a monthly curriculum with a whole bunch of skill development exercises. So my graduate school degree was in the science of skill development. The business, Ryan, was called scienceofskill.com. It's still mm-hmm. still the main URL, even though I, I've sold it. Um, so uh, put it together with, with kind of some drilling guides, training regimens, um, and sort of recurring exercises that were entirely geared around skill development uh, and sort of muscle memory around the most important skills in this particular combat sport domain and decided, hey, we can we can make this a monthly program for, you know, I think when we first started, it was maybe 27 bucks a month or something like that. Uh, and the goal was to, you know, to sell that to as many folks as we could who were interested in jiu-jitsu. And that broadly extended out and ended up exp- extending Ryan to kind of general self-defense and self-protection. So by the end of it, it was not just my own videos. We had, you know, 12 different instructors in Norway, Texas, you name it, who were teaching everything from firearms to bladed weapon defense. Oh, and cool. by the time I <laughs> by the time I sold it, you know, probably one in every 20 videos that we sold even had my name on it, never mind had my face in the video. So when it started, it was my own footage, but yeah, by the time we grew and got it to a couple million top line, it was a much broader audience and it was no longer uh, about me. So, which, you know, coming from the John Warlow world that you're on uh, with, I don't know how yeah, familiar yeah, yeah. you are. Or, oh, I read the book. Totally read his book. So he's got a, something called the Value Builder System where there's eight key drivers that increase the value of companies. And yep. the hub and spoke is one is how reliant is the business on you, the recurring revenue and the platform that you're discussing. So, you know, you did a lot of very, very intelligent things with your business and I think that allowed you to scale and you know for some benchmarks and some timing as you're growing this this very decent asset you went from you had mentioned so you were at like what 20,000 in in recurring revenue around what 15 or 16 months but then when you eventually ended up selling it you were doing about a quarter million a month were you not yeah 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 I think the month we sold was like 208 or something um top line so what what were some of the ways that, you know, as you're working yourself out of the limelight and then also scaling the, the recurring revenue, what, what were some of the key takeaways that allowed you to do that? Big time. Uh, there's, there's really, I mean, I could boil it down to three probably. Um, the, the biggest, the biggest thing for us, uh, was around marketing dashboards and then training the team. So interestingly enough, um, we'll probably, I think we're going to be in the Inc. 500 for 2016's numbers because we were growing really, really quick. Um, so we should be like, I would guess around 400 flat based on like growth rate where like normally like a 1,100% three-year growth rate company lands on, on the Inc. 500. And we'll probably be one of the, uh, or, or maybe the smallest company uh, on there. I grew this thing to be really lean, Ryan. So we had one employee full-time, one employee part-time. And two contractors, um, and that was enough to get us to, to you know more than two million uh, on the top line. Wow! And um, so the employee training was really, 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 really important. Um, but probably the most important thing I can talk about first, Ryan, is kind of nailing marketing as a system and as a process. So the the, the thing that really allowed us to grow and eventually allowed me to step away once I could train uh, my my kind of head. Uh, head folks, my, my full-timer and my part-timer, my actual employees, um, was in finding what would be successful and scalable for marketing. So I think this happens for any business. Um, and and I, I kind of use the analogy of like, you know, you, you find the one pony to ride. There's plenty of companies out there, Ryan, doing $20 million, $30 million a year, 
who have like one marketing channel that they're just super good at. I'm not saying that that's ideal, right? I'm not saying that diversification isn't important. I'm just saying generally people get really good at one or two ways of driving sales through the front door mm -hmm. and they just nail those processes. And if you can't do that, of course you can't do anything else, right? You, you can be really efficient, but if you have no money walking in the front door, uh, you're, you're in, in serious trouble. So we found uh, the channel of kind of email marketing. So we found ways to rent out um, large lists of, let's say, firearms email subscribers or um, survivalist email subscribers or kind of uh, martial arts email subscribers or different folks like this from all kinds of different publishers. And we found a way to put in a dollar and then get, you know, a dollar twenty-five, a dollar fifty, a dollar seventy-five out the backside uh, of of this kind of an exchange. So I say a dollar, I mean like it costs between one thousand and five thousand to rent these different email lists and we could make, you know, uh, safely over a grand the vast majority of the time that we would put a grand in, in the front. Mm -hmm. So we found a channel that we could scale and then we we just invested heavily in how to test, regiment, and ensure consistent profitability and growth in that channel. So we, we nailed one channel of marketing uh, and, and that was that focus was pivotal to being able to get to where we got. That that's a huge takeaway because I think, you know, I've seen so many people where they're either so scattered where they're not they're not even trying something long enough to actually be able to determine whether it actually worked or not. Yeah. And yeah. Um, some clarification, when you're saying renting an email list, can you describe sure. that a little bit? Yep, no problem at all. So I know this is a little bit of a foreign concept. This is not going to apply, like most people that are selling businesses are like, you know, they're doing like trucking freight or like, you know, doing IT services or something, right? This doesn't work with that. But if you're selling to consumers, um, it is often possible to find um, online publishers or agencies who work with a lot of publishers who have large uh, followings, large digital followings of exactly the kind of people you sell to. So if you sell something related to nutrition or fitness or um, you know fishing or uh, any other hobby you can think of, equestrian, right, what, whatever it might be, firearms. Um, I'm not really a firearms guy personally, but we did have a lot of our audience was into that. We did have some video courses that uh, involve kind of self-protection with, with firearms. Um, so you can often find uh, agencies, like uh, marketing agencies, who their entire business model is the following, Ryan. Their entire business model is find all the publishers with big fat blogs, big fat email lists, big fat social presence, entirely built around a specific audience. Let's call it firearms fans. Let's call it hunting people. Let's call it fishing people. Let's call it um, I don't know, people that, that are into, um, you know, tiny homes or trailers or any mm -hmm. weird hobby, you can often find these folks and, uh, and you can essentially go to them and, and get kind of a menu of what's it cost for me to send, for me to write an email for you to push a button and send that email to everybody on this list. Let's say it's 200,000 people. Maybe it's going to cost three grand, three and a half grand for you to push that button and send this message to 200,000 people. What's that mean? It means I've got to make four grand or more on that email, more or less, um, at least, you know, mm -hmm. by the time Shake comes out. Uh, and, and that's that's kind of how it works. So uh, whatever your consumer-focused space is, um, there may in fact be folks who are already collecting that audience and who will rent that audience to you and will rent that exposure at a price. So did they like send an email on behalf of you and it was like it's one ad email or was it like you yeah, had like a yeah. spot on their newsletter or something it's, it's all different good question ryan you there's there's both right so we would do what's called kind of sponsorships where we could put maybe a banner at the top of an email newsletter the bottom the side something like that we could test different sponsorship options or we could do what's called a dedicated email which is where you send a message uh that you know, they'll say at the top, hey, th this is a promotional message from uh, scienceofskill.com uh, about self-defense such and such, um, you know, check this out or whatever, right? So they would let their audience know it's from us and then we would have an entire email that might talk about self-defense techniques or might talk about kind of preventing home break-ins or some similar topic related to some of our courses and programs and then we would send people to our site to purchase our stuff. That's fantastic. So, I mean, you were able to scale that, I mean, pretty yeah. significantly in what 30 36 months yep yep it was it was uh yeah we didn't get into email seriously until close to a year before uh we sold actually so i want to say actually that email channel i just articulated to you 
we probably only were doing for the last 16 or so months of running uh, of running the business. So we wow. grew to close to a, we grew to close to 100,000 per month with mostly just affiliate marketing, which is its own entire internet mm-hmm. marketing spiel, which is neither here nor there for the, the sake of our time. But uh, but yeah, it was, it was email that kind of ended up stepping up and really being the scale factor that got us to a threshold where all the banks were able to say, okay, uh, we'll give you money. Clearly, you guys are growing. Clearly, you guys have margin. Uh, you know, here's a check. Yep. yep. Uh, so, so uh, let's continue because you had said that there was three things. So there's yep, marketing yep. as a process. And so now that you got money coming in the door, how are you allocating your time and your resources now that you've got funds coming in? This is big. So uh, one of the, the biggest factors here, uh, and, and um, you know, our guy John there uh, mentions this in, in Built to Sell, uh, and this is something that was beat over my head by a bunch of business brokers because, as I mentioned, I, I was trying to sell this thing since about a year after I started it because mm-hmm. my goal, you know, artificial intelligence and the intersection of intelligence and tech, and that's really what I wanted to do. So for three years, I was talking to brokers uh, who were trying to get around this. We need three years of bank statements with the SBA thing. Uh, so I got a lot of advice, and, and some of the advice was, um, you know, the owner shouldn't be the guy who's responsible for bringing money in the front door. Makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you know, uh, John's book covers this, and uh, n- very rarely is this considered seriously by people, right? O- oftentimes, even in significant eight-figure companies, it really is the owner who does a lot of the wheeling and dealing. And that was me in the beginning, right? It was mm-hmm. me making tactical decisions about, you know, what email list to buy, how to allocate those marketing dollars. And what, what I ended up doing, we talked about marketing as a system, so I determined, um, how to kind of score the ROI of a promotion, how to measure and track the promotional results of all these different sources of leads so we could kind of develop a consistent set of results. And then what happened from there is I had to train my right-hand man by the name of Tim. Tim's like my my main soldier in that business, just great guy. He was with me since the very beginning. And I basically trained him, hey, Tim, here's how to look at our past results. So every month on the 15th, I want you to look at our past results in this way. I want you to tabulate the future month's spend of marketing in this way, and you're going to do that based on the highest three month the the, uh, the highest ROI from like our previous three to six months of promotions. And here's how you're going to come up with those answers. And we're going to spend about thirty thirty five grand a month. Here's what you're going to do. Uh, two weeks from now is the fifteenth. I want you to sit down, have a meeting with me, and I want you to determine how we're going to spend the ad money. As you can imagine, that didn't work on month one by itself, right? So a lot of coaching. <laughs> Took, yeah. took a lot of context. However, by month four or five, maybe even by month kind of like three-ish, Tim basically hit me with what his plan was. I basically kind of nodded, and he basically went off and spent 40 Gs, and then we smashed 200 through the top. You know what I mean? So That's like, awesome. by the time four or five months went by, Tim was managing this, um, and you know – the rigor that it took, which I wish I did earlier, Ryan, to be honest, the rigor that it took was, um, here's a system that works. Here's a system that consistently generates money. Um, what's a way that anybody could follow steps and get the same results that me, the you know big smart owner guy, right? And of course, uh, not not a genius here by any means. What's what's the way that someone could get the same results as the owner, who's the guy who's really motivated to make sure those results uh, happen the most, and kind of sitting down and arduously grinding out a monthly process, refining it, refining it, refining it, finding where we were getting it wrong, finding where I was doing things different than Tim, and then fleshing that out into a way where it's like, look, on the 15th, you're going to have this in front of me. You're going to have these calculations already tabulated in terms of the expected ROI based on the last three to six months. Here's exactly how it's calculated. We're going to have a half-hour meeting, and then you're going to go below 40 grand. Um, so get, get turning that into a fully delegate, delegated process where – I had nothing to do with the money coming in through the front door. That was probably among the, again, the biggest things I could have done to be able to sell for 90% cash down, which you generally don't do uh, with internet businesses. But unless I had nothing to do with sales, I don't think anybody would have given me, uh, you know, 900 grand in a bank wire. So what was the biggest challenge as you're teaching Tim and you're getting this data put together? What was the biggest challenge in the transfer of knowledge? Yeah, um... Great question again. I'd say uh, all of these processes, Ryan, and, and you learn this yourself, I imagine, building a, a significant business with your father there. Um, any process that you try to delegate is generally not 
delegated by writing down the first five steps that come to your head, sliding that piece of paper across the table to somebody and then running away and doing something else. Um, although we all do that as entrepreneurs probably <laughs> too often, um, the, 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 the biggest challenge initially was just figuring out, and, and this is what, uh, for my first probably four years running businesses, mainly my jiu-jitsu academy, I just hardly ever would take the time to do, figuring out how ultimately am I the guy who's hell-bent to make sure I'm paying payroll you know, the next month, H how am I getting these results? Like, What are the, the signals and the trust signals? And like, like, let's get past intuition. Let's force myself to turn the, oh my God, I have to make this spend turn into revenue process into a damn process. And so really grinding that out was not just thinking hard about it, Ryan. It was thinking hard about it, putting my best guess forth into a process that Tim could run him coming to me and then us finding out where the holes were poked, us mm -hmm. finding out together where, uh, you know, I might have been wrong. Like, oh, Tim, what we, you know, you know what I should have told you, Tim, is we can't send the same promotion two months in a row with the same headline to the same list because it's almost always going to degrade our results. People are not going to respond uh, as swiftly to that. So, okay, all right, well, we need to add that to the process. Okay, let's go back. Let's go add it to the process. So we had a big company wiki, if you will, kind of like a Wikipedia, but for our company. Mm -hmm. um, and we would, we would go in there and edit the damn process. Okay, well, next month, Tim, do the same stuff. We're just not going to double up on the same promotion. And let's see if you'd get the same darn you know uh, results that I would this next time. Then we go through it uh, next time. So mm -hmm. ultimately, there's no way to sit down and nail it first. I found anyway, Ryan, I, maybe I just wasn't smart enough for that. I found that... Uh, a bet, you know, doing a, a really firm meditation and kind of whiteboard session by myself, coming out with what I thought was best, that would always require either weekly or monthly touch base to that delegated person to ensure that we could get it moving smoothly together. So the commitment to grind through the crunchy parts that weren't really smooth in the, in the beginning, um, that commitment to meet up every month and just like beat the crap out of that spreadsheet until it did exactly what we needed it to do. Um, that commitment was I, was, I would think, kind of the biggest hurdle to me doing that, you know, a year earlier mm -hmm. than when I actually did. What was your uh, your biggest missed calculated guess? Oh, man. Ugh. That, that's, uh, that's tough. Let me think on that. Um, I'd say we uh, – I mean, you learn a lot of lessons the hard way, like things that you don't know you're doing wrong until something horrible happens. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and we, we all uh, go, go through those. But we had had, um, when we first got into email promotions, we were working with one of the, the bigger and more reputable firms who rents out email lists. I'm not going to name names. Um, but uh, they, as it turns out, um, they were sending us what, what we believe to be fake credit card transactions. In other words, somebody at the marketing company, not the actual subscribers to the email list, were, were processing um, payments. Like they were taking kind of customer info and processing it through our order forms um, in order to feign the appearance of mm. sales, wow. right? So, um, so now the, the only reason we found that out, Ryan, is because the customers from those promotions had between a two and a four x higher chargeback rate than any lead source we had ever had in the company prior. Hmm. Uh, now we didn't find that out until we noticed a huge spike in in chargebacks, and, and the merchant accounts were like, "Hey, what the heck? Are you like selling fake stuff? What's going on?" And we're like, "No, we're selling the exact same stuff we used to be." Um, so my miscalculation was, "Hey, if if the ROI calculations look great." Just keep spending, right? So the first time we ever touched, you know, 150, 180 grand um, in revenue in the top line, as it turns out, it super wasn't sustainable because, you know, we were sort of being duped uh, by this marketing company, and we had to develop a cohort, uh, a, a cohort testing strategy to make sure that none of our marketing sources were from fake sources. So we developed a kind of monthly process to ensure that we would never be duped again. But probably my biggest miscalculation was, hey, the ROI numbers are looking good. Let's keep feeding the top line, boys. Yep. Let her rip. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, that almost put us under for sure. But we survived it, built a process, got stronger. Uh, luckily, didn't go bankrupt. So thank goodness. Well, I, th I think you, you touched on an interesting piece of that because I think, you know, the biggest fear is when you say going away from, you know, away from intuition into process. I mean, 
the process should filter it out. Like whether it was you, the owner, or whether it was your right hand man, you wouldn't have known this until after the fact. Yeah. So just being comfortable that even even if it is your right hand individual, the person you're delegating to, that they're gonna have mistakes like that. But as long as you're managing to the financials or the data correctly, together you can re-correct it because you're not gonna be able to predict everything. Yeah, yeah, that was one that was, I mean, maybe if I had talked to enough other smart people in the industry, Ryan, I would have found out, whoa, hey, when you're scaling, when you're doubling your ad spend, you know, three, four months in a row, here's something that can really sink you, right? Maybe if I talked to enough smart people, I could have known, but to be honest, we were kind of trusting that, you know, we were actually getting what we were paying for. We weren't trusting that we were being kind of duped uh, in a fraudulent way, and as it turns out, uh, you know, newbie's mistake and, uh, almost, almost did us in. So that was probably one of the biggest ones we ever had. So what was the third, uh, criteria that you're, you're, so we've talked about dashboards, we got the hub and spoke or the, uh, you know, delegating the duties. What was the, uh, the third one? Yeah. Um, well, so we talked about kind of marketing as a process. We talked about delegating. Um, I haven't fully kind of gotten into to dashboards with you, but actually I would say that, uh, well, you know, well, so, why don't you dive into it then? Oh, yeah, cause I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, curious because I actually uh, I interviewed a gentleman named Rob Nelson who's got a business intelligence dashboard software he created after yeah. he sold his first company. Um, mm-hmm. So the whole BI world, and I know that kind of goes off, we could go off on a tangent, your artificial intelligence oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and my sure. passion behind that too. But, you know, explain the dashboards and how, like, because I, I, you know, I, to tee up, I think the biggest thing that we had at uh, our last business is, just a lack of clarity in the financials because it's so difficult to make decisions if you don't have the integrity behind the data. So what did you do to kind of, to filter through that? I'll give you the biggest things that I did, Ryan, biggest things that I did. And and a lot of this was just errors from that I didn't do when I first started, which I should have done. Um, one of them was just deciding to be a grown up and to just, uh, understand finances super hardcore. So, uh, now does this mean becoming an accountant? No, but what I did was I, um, I decided to uh, work with bookkeepers who I could talk to every single week for like half an hour to 40 minutes. So they would update everything on a weekly basis. Uh, all of our revenue, all of our expenses every single week would be up to snuff. Um, they would categorize it. I would go in kind of with them and nitpick a little bit, and we would talk about what happened, what were the changes, what should we think about now, what does this mean, what are these ramifications. Hey, I was in the balance sheet. What does this mean? I don't even know how we're categorizing this, this number looks wrong, right? Grilling, 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 grilling all the corners. And a lot of those questions were dumb questions, Ryan. So I was asking bookkeepers like dumb stuff, you know, like things that like if you if you were an accountant, you would have known, you know, uh, your first year in college or like, you know, your first uh, like four classes in college. But, you know, I didn't go to school to be an accountant. I went to school for cognitive science and, and like, you know, and, and I don't know how to count beans, right? I know how to make money. So I, I don't like, I'm not a bean counter, right? So I was asking bean counter questions and I just decided to be a full blown grown up and to make sure that if there's any software that I master the most, it's not my marketing automation, it's not my database marketing, it's not my analytics tracking, it's my QuickBooks. If there's one software I have to, to master, it would be QuickBooks. I should know my way around QuickBooks more than I know my way around all this tactical nonsense because at the end of the day, if I don't pay bills, it's over. So um, I just kind of made the personal commitment to master QuickBooks to, it, it's not a huge time commitment, Ryan, but you know, half an hour, 40 minutes every week, everything fully updated from my uh, bookkeeping team and just grill them with questions. What does this mean? This looks wrong. Uh, where do we put these things? Should we split up these categories to be more accurate? Is there a way we can separate shipping from this other like reshipping fee that the warehouse sometimes charges us? Because I think that's going to help us make smarter decisions, right? Thinking through and thinking through and thinking through what transparency in finances looks like and then making sure that um, when I look at QuickBooks every single week, I had a great idea of where we're at. So that's that's one thing, Ryan. Um, but ultimately, QuickBooks is a result of all your business processes. So uh, there's a whole bunch of books that go into this really well. There's a book called Scaling Up by Vern Harnish, which I think is also rather mm-hmm. good. Um, it's it's really written more about you know companies that go public and and do sort of larger things. And I'm I'm quite interested in in uh, businesses you know that are serious. And so uh, I was reading Scaling Up pretty ardently. Um, and uh, there was a huge emphasis on. Uh, coming up with the the core metrics that really represent what's happening in the company. And so we decided, Ryan, uh, we sat down as a team and decided, okay, customer service, revenue, refunds, 
uh, ongoing subscriptions, or we broke down maybe eight or nine different categories of activity that mm -hmm. were really essential for us to do two things, grow and profit. So, hey, we want to grow, and we also want to keep some dollars around here. In order to do that, how does this process tie to growth and profit? How does this process tie to growth and profit? How does this process, right? And, and as a team, as a team of maybe three or four guys, we sat down and just brain dumped for two hours what that ultimately looks like and totally revamp the numbers that we were looking at every week. We were looking at stuff that like I kind of thought we should look at, but it was it was very much not deliberate. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we we said every single process, okay, let's look at the warehouse and, and fulfillment. Let's look at customer service. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. And let's say, what are the core metrics every week from this process that we need to know are going in what direction to know how much money we're going to freaking make around here. Uh, so customer service, you know, we boiled down ticket time and uh, uh, prevalence of different types of tickets and all this wacky stuff. But we essentially did that hard brainstorming. That's something I wish I did earlier, Ryan. Again, get the team together and ask, okay, if we break down our business into its core processes. Let's say it's, you know, six or nine core processes. Okay, um, give me four numbers in this process that we know if we're hitting, we are on the path to profit and growth. Give me those damn four numbers. Mm -hmm. And we talked to the guy in customer service. Shake, shake those four numbers out of them, right? Brainstorm as a team. Uh, do the same thing for marketing. Same thing for all of our core processes. Um, and then have the whole team look at that every single Monday. So the entire team would be on a 45-minute call. We'd go top to bottom through every single one of those numbers. So even if you're not on the customer support team, you know exactly how well you're doing, uh, how well we're doing as a team. Even if you're not on the marketing team, you know exactly how well we're doing with marketing. Um, and so everybody's on the same page about the pulse of the business. And it was only when we had that transparency that I felt comfortable doubling the business every year. Because most of the years we were doubling, dude, I felt out of control. You hit it right there. I just I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And um, I always laugh because one of the times that we were on the Inc. 5000, um, we were – I can't, we like broke even or it was just, it was not a good year because we were not spending the dollars correctly and you just have to ask why, where's all your money going, what's happening and you said it, the, the pulse of the business and yep. um, I don't know if you're familiar with Traction, it's kind of like the Rockefeller Habits, it's a book. Yeah, I, I honestly, you know, I think I probably have it on Kindle but I haven't dug into it yet. Do you so, like that? You know, it, it's, it's. You know, it, it solves the same purposes that a, the Rockefeller habits or any. It's trying to figure out a process and the core fundamentals of your quarterly objectives, how it goes to your, you know, your overall business vision, yeah. to your yeah. annual goals, all this stuff. But you know, one of the the main takeaways that I have, which is probably different than a lot of other individuals, which, which the question that they asked was, if you were on an island and you got to ask three questions to someone about your business, what are the three numbers that you would want to know? Yeah. Isn't that cool? Because like, it's, well, it's yeah. exactly what you did, which is, you know, you, and then obviously it, it ex extrapolates into different divisions as you continue to, um, yep. to, to build on it. But yeah, the three numbers, and it's not always top line and bottom line because that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, explain how the inner workings of your business is actually doing. Yeah, what are those levers that result in the top line and bottom line? Exactly. Like what are, those, what are those key behaviors and can you look at those, you know, often? We had some metrics, Ryan, that we looked at, you know, twice a week. We had some metrics that we looked at every day. And it wasn't the whole team that was looking at them every day. But somebody was responsible for, you know, in our morning meeting saying where we're at with metric X, where we're at with metric Y. Because, yeah, otherwise, like you said, I mean, man, you can grow like hell. But it's like, where the, where the, like, did we even have any profit? Like, what's going on around here, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So you were talking to a business broker for a few years, which I think, by the way, is very interesting because a lot of people get, you know, obviously being on the younger end of the spectrum versus someone who gets burnt out. You know, I think yeah. you not being burnt out is one of the, it's a huge, huge factor. And I, you know, obviously you've got a lot of energy and the people that end up getting burnt out give up and they go engage with a business broker, an investment banker, and they're they're already short on time just mentally. So you had this luxury of the interactions with the business broker along the way. Yep. As you know, what are some of the key takeaways? You know, you'd mentioned that you'd learned some of this stuff from them, from uh, Warlow's book, but uh, what are some of the key takeaways that you learned from this individual? And did you have an idea of who you were going to sell to? And then kind of explain that, you know, when you decided to start going through that process, man, you know, um, I, I went in with a lot of naive notions that were very quickly set straight. 
So <laughs> one, one, I'll talk to you about some of those naive notions. So um, one of those naive notions is that you know we could get some decent multiple uh, of of uh, of profit uh, to sell to sell the company. Um, and as it turns out, I mean, unless you have like an awesome like strategic partnership of some time of, of some kind, like it's it's really unusual for a small business, you know, a couple million dollar business even, to sell for, you know, that much more than whatever three times, you know, profit or mm-hmm. something. You know what I mean? Like it's just super weirdly kind of it's not that normal. And I guess I would have thought, man, if we can grow fast, right? If we can go if if our if our PL is always slanted up into the right, always. Right. And it was. I mean, every single year we doubled. I mean, you can't get in the Inc. five hundred with by like sitting still. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- then somebody's gonna give you a higher multiple if you're clearly a growth business. But as it turns out, Ryan, um y- you know, that's that's not the case. I mean, unless you have a strategic buyer in your space, like some kind of proprietary IP or some kind of proprietary customer list in some really hard to find space or something where someone is able to value uh, like something other than just your cash flows, you're just going to sell for a multiple of, of your cash flows in, in general, right? Unless you can really orchestrate something special, uh, you're, you're really just going to sell uh, for cash flows in most small businesses, all right? So uh, particularly in like e-commerce, digital publishing kind of business. So I learned very quickly that glamorous exits were probably not going to be possible. If I wanted to grow this thing big enough to get into kind of boutique private equity and, and have like a much you know, bigger uh, exit, it would have taken me many more years. And I'm just not excited to, to do that because I know I have other things to do in, in the AI uh, and policy space. So I just didn't want to stick around. If, you know, a million dollars was enough for me. I'm, I'm done. So, mm-hmm. um, so I learned very quickly that multiples are not glamorous. I also learned that uh, you know, banks don't like stuff that involves the internet. So <laughs> if you, so like, like at the end of like the buyers, I was talking to the buyers not that long ago. I, I have a good relationship with those guys. So I found some good guys, uh, who were willing to trust me enough to put up 90% of the money right up front, which was great. Uh, and I was also able to help them with a little bit of the transition, but they kind of have, haven't called me after like the second week of transition. Cause it was, it was pretty simple. I wasn't doing much work by the time I sold, but I have a good relationship with them. And they had mentioned after the deal, they were like, yeah, I'm not going to lie, man. Like our last, like, uh, our last meeting with the banker, they were just looking at the P and L's and they were like, to be honest, I don't know what you're buying, but we are able to back it based on the cash flow. But like, to be honest, guys, like, I, I don't know what this is, right? Cause like you can't take someone who works at the bank and tell them, um, we leverage large email lists to promote to sales pages with high conversion rates and then upsell to recurring revenue digital subscription pro right you can't say that they're going to be like hey do you have any machinery yeah 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 <laughs> Wait, do you have sewing machines do you do you have pizza ovens do, do you have trucks it's like no we have none of that and we do multiple millions of dollars and we're probably going to be in the Inc 500 and I have one full-time employee. We make money, that's what we do, right? But but they don't they don't like that. They don't care about your money. They don't care. What they want is trucks. Like they want things that banks understand. Namely like really boring businesses uh, that are really boring. Uh, so banks like pizza shops. Banks like uh you know, uh, companies that deliver stuff in trucks because they like trucks. So banks like physical assets. So I thought that, you know, a larger multiple could be garnered by being very lean, having zero debt, like never. I never took on a lick of debt. I started this thing with very little in my bank account, never took on a lick of debt, profitable all the time. Um, and man, they, they just don't even like it. Like they want heavy stuff and uh, they don't understand if you're the internet. So as it turns out, another thing I learned, Ryan, was that um, finding a bank who could say that e-commerce was okay to do a deal in was actually not normal. How did you uh, do we, that? I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, well, I talked to a lot of different banks out here in California and in the Bay Area, there's folks who are a little bit more open-minded to it. Um, but luckily, the buyers who purchased our business um, had previously bought a SaaS company selling into the government, uh, kind of selling like time tracking software to government agencies. Mm. Um and they, they had had like another separate kind of service-based, mostly internet business kind of selling into the government space as well. So they had some substantial companies with mostly kind of a digital presence um, before. And so they had a relationship with a bank for like six years running those other companies. And so the bank 
liked them, knew that they had money, knew that they knew how to run a recurring revenue business. And it was kind of that trust that let the bank, you know, cut 900 G's and, and send it in a wire. Um, it was not really the fact that they understood the business model. It ended up being a lot more about the personal trust yeah, of, yeah. of the buyer. Did you use so. a, did you use an actual like internet e-commerce business broker or did you use a traditional? Yeah, yes, entirely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, I don't know anybody who sold an e-commerce business with like a broker that normally sells gas stations or something. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's possible, but I just don't know anybody that's fit that bill. Um, I will say this, Ryan, another big important lesson, maybe this is the last one just given time, but uh, another big important lesson for a business broker for me um, was that finding the right broker actually does make a ton of difference, a ton mm -hmm. of difference. So the last broker that I worked with I kind of contacted him directly. I had talked to him probably three years prior. We were only doing about 40 grand a month in revenue. He didn't really deal with business sales along those same size. Like he just wasn't doing exits like that were smaller. So by the time we were doing, you know, closer to half a million, uh, you know, in EBITDA or whatnot, or maybe a little bit more, um, you know, I had contacted him again and I said, hey, you know, it's been a couple of years, but, um, you know, we'll do a couple million this year and we're looking to get, uh, more substantial exit, would you like to chat? And the reason I, I contact him directly is because I knew for a fact that he had sold multiple businesses like mine. When I say like mine, Ryan, yep. I mean e-commerce e and multi-million top line. So to find somebody who's not totally wet behind the ears, like a lot of the brokers I work with, I look back and I say, man, we were the biggest business they probably would have ever sold. Right? They, they probably would have never, like that may have been if they got the deal like the mm -hmm. biggest sale they ever got, right? Yep, yep, um, and, and, and so, because in the e-commerce business, you know, a lot of the time you're selling for, you know, a quarter million, you're selling for 200 Gs, you're selling for 300 Gs. Um, there's not not that many kind of niche e-commerce businesses that sell for a million bucks or, or a little bit over a million bucks. Um, so uh, finding a broker who has a ton of experience with your size and your kind of business, at least for me, ended up being the big difference. I was with this guy for like four months and then we had a check and it was kind of over, so... So um, how did you how did you guys value the company? Was it a multiple on your EBITDA? Yeah, it was a multiple. I think yeah, I think it was a multiple on EBITDA uh, and plus like the value of inventory. So we had I don't know twelve thirteen grand in inventory. Um, okay. And then you know a little bit over. I mean, if I, I know it, I know it as a multiple of profit as like close to maybe three x bottom line. Okay. Uh, and and like our trailing twelve months, like. Take that profit, multiply it by about three, uh, and then um, that was kind of uh, that was kind of the ball game in terms of what we got for the sale price. The the pusher though, what, what kind of made it a little bit unusual was getting ninety percent down. Most of the time, you're going to be getting you know forty five percent, fifty percent down on these kind of companies. With so, the rest of an event or an earnout or a promise. Yeah, yeah, so and I'm how, just not what, big on earnout. Like I made it very clear, I'm not going to stick around uh, for super long. Uh, and we built a company that doesn't really require me as an owner and I'll do everything I can to prove that to you. But when we cross the threshold, like I'm going to get the dollars and I'm going to support you all I can, but I'm really just not going to be, be around for very long. So I, for time's sake, um, I know you and I could probably keep, keep, uh, the conversations rolling, but, um, yeah, yeah. you've got some interesting things on, uh, the docket. What are you doing now? Where are you going? And, uh, cause obviously you did that entire project if you want to call it that because of yep. where you're going which i think you know just even the purpose of my the title of the podcast like what are you doing with your life you've got obviously when you talk about policies and ai there's stuff you want yeah. to accomplish yeah. so how do you tie it all together yeah man um well the the luckily now i'm in a, a spot where uh i can really have the freedom to to do that but yeah the, the game plan is to build a uh, market research and kind of media platform in the artificial intelligence space. So sort of connecting the various vendor companies in the exciting world of AI and machine learning to uh, the companies that are invariably going to need uh, to adopt those kind of technologies in info security and in business analytics and marketing, uh, healthcare, whatever the case may be. Um, and to uh, and in doing that, Ryan, the goal is to be able to create a tremendous volume of very objective, very dialed in market research in the domain of AI, but make that research free. Uh, the ultimate purpose sort of of the business for me uh, would be to kind of ultimately inform the decisions of businesses and governments as we start to kind of regulate and make sense of what the future of AI looks like. I think we're going to need good information. And if we can have a business model that 
lets us give away the marketing in exchange for kind of traffic and exposure for companies. So make it a little bit more around advertising and exposure than around you know, selling our research, then the research can be free and open. We can fulfill that kind of moral purpose of proliferating the conversation about the applications and implications of AI while still serving a really strong business purpose uh, for all the vendors and all the buyers who positively have to do business in the space as all these industries start to modernize. So that's the, the current game plan uh, with Tech Emergence, which is the, the, the business I'm in now and my ultimate kind of life purpose here. I think it's an absolute fantastic mission because the alternative is we're getting information and market research from the lobbyist arm of the big corporations. So I think, yeah. you know, there it's a whole space that needs a ton of attention. And you and I, again, like I said, could go on probably for we could hours. We could rip on that for a yeah, while. Yeah, I was going to say we, we'll spare the <laughs> yeah. listeners that, that uh, side tangent. But I, I think it's an awesome deal. And I think uh, you're going to definitely be busy in the upcoming future. What is the best way, Dan, for our listeners to get in touch with you? Definitely, yeah. Uh, if, if people want to tune in, I would say in terms of relevance to what we chatted about today, uh, the only place where I still blog and send out emails and sort of uh, stay abreast of kind of marketing and dashboard stuff, uh, kind of my whole journey in business, is at a site called clvboost.com. stands for Customer Lifetime Value. But that's basically like a marketing blog that I run, which is about a lot of the marketing, particularly email and marketing automation strategies, as well as kind of automation practices that we used in my previous companies. I've just kind of written a lot about that at clvboost.com. I have one article in particular I think would be useful, Ryan. I'll just send it to you later. But clvboost.com is probably the easiest place to learn about kind of what we talked about today. And if people want to know what it's like to, to sell a business and kind of all the emotional herky-jerkiness and like all the the hubbub around kind of making the transition work and find the right buyers. And if you want to get a sense of that kind of story, um, we're rebranding Tech Emergence, Ryan, as Emerge, E-M-E-R-J. So E-M-E-R-J.com slash exit is the only article I've written that covers kind of the full story of what the heck does it look like from finding a broker to finding a buyer to closing the deal and kind of what are the emotional elements, what are the logistical elements to make that go well and to be able to get as much cash uh, as you can, that's pretty much the only article I've ever written on that is E-M-E-R-J, emerge.com slash exit. So I think in terms of value for your folks, those are probably the things that would be helpful. Perfect. I will put those in the show notes. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course, Ryan. Hey, glad to meet you, man. 